here's the thing. Time is the essential piece of interpretation. You cannot start without me. I start the clock. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means time stops. Welcome to this special mini episode of Citizen Dame. I am Karen Peterson, joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hi, Lauren. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. Good. Pretty good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're going to keep things pretty, uh, pretty concise today because this is a mini episode where we just specifically want to focus on a movie that we are still trying to decide how we feel. Um, and that is Todd Field's Tar. T with an A with an accent on it, R. Um, this stars Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tar, who is an award-winning composer, not an actual person. She is a fictional character, uh, <laughs> which... I've- it's I've had to confusing ex- people. <laughs> yeah, I've had to explain this to a couple of people. Like a couple of people were like, "So is this like a biopic?" She's like, "No, this is not a real person. This is a made-up person." <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. But I think you know when you start getting stuff like, um, uh, like I mean, I think she has a, a Twitter account, a Facebook page, and things like that. It, yeah, it does confuse people, and I love that kind of marketing. <laughs> it's so fun. Um. But yeah, so this movie was written and directed by Todd Field, his first movie in a long, long time. Uh, and it does star Kate Blanchett in the title role of Lydia Tarr, as well as Noemi Merland, Nina Haas, and some other great, um, great people. So um, we so this one is a little bit tricky because in order to really break down this episode and and where we're at with it, we will need to spoil it. But I also recognize, we also recognize that a lot of people won't have seen the movie yet. The thing is that I think that this is one, and tell me if you agree, Lauren, but I think that this is a movie where so much of, of the, the story is kind of not necessarily up to interpretation, but is really up to like, you need to experience it. So knowing what happens, knowing like, every detail of the plot won't necessarily um, affect your ability to really sit down and watch this movie and still not necessarily understand what's about to happen. Yeah. I I think it's not, it's character driven. It really isn't about the plot. There is a plot and it's, and actually it's a pretty clear and and fairly straightforward plot when you come right down to it. Actually, before we started recording, I was, um, I was just rereading the Wikipedia page to be like, okay, what's the, let let me refresh my memory about what the plot is. And really when you break it down, it's just like, this is pretty straightforward, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so much of it is about the experience of it. And particularly I think Blanchett's performance and the complicated nature of what we're actually watching and the complicated ways that we feel about the main character, about the people around her, um, about the various events that it, it can't, it's, you know, it's not like a murder mystery where you have like, okay, here's the story and here's the reveal of who the killer is. So saying that like, oh, we're going to spoil it. It's like nothing that happened in the, in terms of the plot of the film was surprising to me, particularly, yeah. particularly after about the first half hour of the film when you really begin to get a feel of who she is. Um, and, and kind of seeing where some of the, some of the elements were going. Uh, but so most of it is more about how complicated it actually is mm-hmm. uh, and that and that does come down to the performances and the dialogue and the like you say the emotionality and all of the other things that are connected to the basic plot yeah now so the the plot summary that the studio has provided is basically 
Set in the international world of Western classical music, the film centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered one of the greatest living composer, conductors, and first ever female music director of a major German orchestra. One of the ways you know this is not a real person is that still this major German orchestra has never had a female music director. <laughs> so <laughs> um, uh, it's the Berlin Symphony, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, but of course, there's a lot more to it than that. Lydia is this very complicated woman who um, uh, in the opening scene, it's a very uh, long scene where she's in an interview. It's like a a conversation with a a critic who um, is asking her questions about her career and being um being the first female conductor of the berlin it's the berlin philharmonic and yeah. this up this upcoming recording that she's planning on doing of Mahler's fifth symphony and so she's talking about this and she's talking about her influences and and her mentor and um the question comes up about you know her her being a woman and what does that mean to her? And she basically is dismissive of that. Like, Oh, well I haven't Mm -hmm. been the one that's had to fight these fights. Other people have done that for me and I've been able to benefit from that. And basically like, I'm not, I'm not the icon. I'm just here to do the work. It's kind of her attitude. Yeah. And I think that that opening sequence is so incredibly important. And at the same time, we're given all of this information about this character. We're giving her biography basically from at the very beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. And and we're given all this information, not just like in terms of her biography, but also in terms of who she is and how she presents herself. And that introduction seems so important because it really does frame, I guess, the way that we understand the rest of the film. Because, and it, it also gives Blanchett an opportunity to be probably at her best in terms of she's very charming, she's very likable, she's very attractive, like all of those things that we kind of, we almost associate with Kate Blanchett, she's putting into Lydia Tarr and crafting this character that is very compelling mm-hmm. um, right from the very beginning. And yeah, and she, there is this sense of like humility in that interview, you know, it's like, well, I'm not the trailblazer, right? Let's talk about the women who came before me. Um, you know, this this is important, but it's not it's not that important, right? I, I am the conductor. And then you begin to get, even at that point, those little elements of ego mm-hmm. um, filtered through the things that she says about like Bernstein and about the other female conductors and composers that have come before her. Um, and and how like, you know, oh, I, you know, I, I keep the time, but it's very important, you know, and this whole this whole idea of her being in control of time. Um, and, and that, that power that she has and the way that she gets into the power and you see it right from the very beginning of the film, even though it's couched in this very charming, very likable persona. Yeah. Um, and then, and I, I did think, so I think that it's very important to note that, and that so much of the film is filtered through that opening interview, um, which is supposed to take place, I think at like the New Yorker film festival, the critic is, is, um, Adam Gopnik, who's a, a critic for The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So it, it is, it's again, that sort of construction of this is a real person at some level. Yeah, it really does kind of add to that, like, oh, this is a biopic that we're, we're going into, which it is definitely not. But I think that, I think too, that um, one of the things that makes this, I mean, everything you said is, is so, so well stated. I think in addition to that, we get a little bit of a sense of kind of why Lydia is able to have the career that she has had. And I think some of it, just knowing how men react to women who are the first to do things. And when that is, that becomes part of their identity. And she's very much like dismissive of that in a, in a like humble brag a little bit kind of way. But where she doesn't want that to be her identifier, because that, I think, in some ways endears her more to the men in her industry, because, oh, well, you know, being first isn't what matters. It's just about the music. And and I think that men tend to not yeah. necessarily care so much about the first to do anything because it's not men. You know what I mean? 
yeah, she she has there's a certain amount of self-effacement that's going on. Yeah. Um, and that she and that it and it is it's performative to a certain degree because as as we can tell as the film proceeds. But I, I also think that there's an element there of, and there's an element that runs throughout the entire film about her sacrificing something about being a woman mm-hmm. in order to get ahead, in order to gain the power and the prestige and and the everything that, and I don't think that, that that's in, not in terms of like sexuality or anything like that, but that that kind of erasing some part of her identity as yeah. not even as a lesbian, but as a woman, right? Um, in order to be acceptable uh, to the men in her field, and you see that, and you see that over and over again in her interactions, particularly with other with men, right? But even in her interactions with women, and she takes on these characteristics that she calls masculine, that she is like. Um, you know, so she she's kind of she says at one point uh, to like her daughter's bully, she says at one point, oh, I'm you know, I'm I'm her father. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there is this like consistent element of her erasing being female in order to to succeed. And and as a part of that, one of the things that she is erasing is also the love of the music itself. And that's one of the things that I think develops pro particularly in the last act when she essentially loses everything um, and is trying to get back to that emotionality and that, that feeling of what made her be a composer, what made her be a conductor in the first place. Yeah. And that, some of that is carried into the next scene where she sits down with Elliot, who's played by Mark strong, who's another conductor. He's actually running a program that she started, which is to, help build female conductors help help give them mentorship and and um and uh i don't remember the other word i was gonna say but uh, fellowships 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 like yeah they're to basically get them into orchestras and get them get them on their way to becoming conductors just like exactly exactly so she started this but he's running it and um we find out there's some some reasons why that's probably for the best, but um, but she in this scene she's wanting to open that up to men. She's wanting to to expand the um, expand the membership in this to to male um, musicians as well, male conductors. Um, so she's just wanting to basically use her power and her prestige and her experience and connections to to mentor and and give this fellowship opportunities to any conductors not you know not worrying about or not um Mm -hmm. words are hard um but yeah without without respect to gender like yeah yeah so i think between those two scenes i think th- these are the ways that we are introduced to lydia tar and i think that that those two things we don't really in this point in the movie we don't fully understand um how much of her life and her choices and her career will um uh mirror i don't know if that's the right word but will reflect um, sort of this male dominated world that she's mm-hmm. in but I think that those two scenes and where she's at and how she interacts with in both cases these are conversations that she's having with men in the music world and and how that informs the film that we are about to see yeah it, it's a very deft I don't want to say sleight of hand but it's a very deft I guess kind of window into the character because because it's difficult actually like even in watching the film i've found myself being like trying to recall elements of her biography and some of the things that were said and those are two scenes that have a lot of dialogue Mm -hmm. like it's a lot of talking and particularly just kate blanchett talking right um for large sections of those scenes and also i think one of the subsequent scenes the scene at juilliard that is the um, very next scene. <laughs> yeah, which which and so I, I think that you can make the case that those three scenes show 
the character so show who this woman is mm -hmm. in all of the the variations and complexities at least in terms of her professional life and then we get a little bit more into her her personal life and her family life um but i think that all those three scenes are kind of the 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 window the mirror through which we need to read everything else um, and if we understand what is happening in those scenes and the complexities that are happening within it, and it's difficult to parse out, definitely on a first viewing. I mean, we're both talking here as like people who have seen this movie once. Right. Um, uh, but that if we look through those scenes that you begin to get a, a sensation about who she is, what she's given up and what she's just not even given up, destroyed in herself in order to succeed uh, as, as she, as she, to become the person that she is. Right. Um, and yeah, it, it's very complicated. It's also very complicated understanding of music and of art. And like, even just watching those three scenes, I was like, this is really exciting because you very rarely in, in contemporary film really see long sections of dialogue or even long monologues where, you know, you've got an actress just basically talking mm -hmm. for huge sections of the runtime. Uh, and and disclaiming, you know, whether you agree with her or not, disclaiming about art and about music and about the meaning of it. Right. So let's talk about the scene at Juilliard and then we can kind of go into the rest of the film <laughs> sort of more as a whole, I think. But uh, yeah, so she is is um, teaching a class at, at Juilliard or uh, guest guest lecturing, I guess, um, this conducting class and she has a student who is um, kind of in the hot seat uh, up on the stage in front of everyone. And she's talking to him about composers like Bach. And he doesn't have any experience with Bach because Bach has a lot of misogynist views, a lot of racial problems. Max happens to be black. And, um, and so the, basically this turns into it starts off as a little bit of a back and forth but it turns into again Lydia going into this very long sort of a, a monologue and really just lecturing Max and by extension the entire class everyone who's there on this concept of separating the art from the artist which we've <laughs> talked about so many times here and you know is it is it appropriate is it necessary is it right to erase someone like Bach just because of who they were in their personal lives and because they go against things that we really agree or really believe or do we need to recognize their significant contributions to music history i.e the reason that they are all here what is appropriate in this case and um the conversation ends with her making a pretty insulting comment to max who then storms out of the room um why don't you tell wh what are some of your thoughts about this scene in particular i think this Again, is the, a pretty momentous scene here actually it's it's a momentous scene and it's funny because this is the scene that like people are like oh this is like an anti-woke movie it's just like are did you not watch the whole fucking movie did you right. just watch that scene <laughs> and think that the film was like, this is the pinnacle of art. This is the woman that we want to emulate because I have news for you. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's it's a dialogue, like you said, that we've had many times before. This whole concept of separating the art from the artist, this whole idea about like, how far can we go to do that? And on the one hand, you're kind of like, I understand some of her points. Mm -hmm. Sorry, hold on just a second. <laughs> Hi, Ruben. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so, so yeah, it, during that conversation, I'm like, I understand some of her points and I even might slightly agree with caveats, but of course she, she takes it too far and she, you know, goes, goes into this whole thing and this whole argument about identity politics and about what it, you know, how do we, how do we deal with, with figures like Bach, with figures like any, you know, most of, of uh, conducting, right, European at least. 
mm-hmm. um, the the racism, the the sexism, the anti-Semitism, you know, all of those various things. Um, and and how do we actually navigate that? And and do we need to? So so part of her her argument with um, what's uh, Max, yeah. right? Is that the and Max? I believe even says that, he, that they're non-binary. Um, so you've got this this oh, young that's right. I'm black so sorry. I forgot non-binary that. person. Mm-hmm. I th- I think that's my memory. Um, who's having this argument with this you know older white lesbian, <laughs> right? About you know can we efface Bach? Can we ignore Bach's problems, etc. In order just to talk about the music. And her whole point is that is not just that, you know, we should efface whatever, you know, the the reality of who Bach was as a human being in order to just talk about the music, but that the music itself is superior to the choices of more contemporary composers. Right. And and that I think is is where the sticking point comes. And and so much of the work that Lydia Tarr is represented as doing is she's going back to the old standards. She's going back to Tchaikovsky and, um, and Wagner and Mahler. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that those are the ones that she is using as representative of um, what music is, what classical music is. Right. Meanwhile, she's got these, these younger conductors, et cetera, who are taking it one step further. And, and I, I do think that, if you look at this in terms of her being angry at some level of the sacrifices that she has made or felt she had to make in order to be successful and seeing these younger people who are not perhaps being forced to make those sacrifices in the same way, who are not having to destroy their identities or to, to warp their own identities in order to go to Juilliard. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I, I do think that if read through those lenses, there, it's maybe makes her a little bit more sympathetic, but at the same time, you're also like, she's mad um, about having to have this argument. And she just basically wants to dismiss it altogether. Wants to say like, no, we're gonna completely erase the artist. Um, you know, anything that the artist does, did, didn't do, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then of course, when we understand more about her own behavior, um, as the film goes on, I, I think that we also then understand more about what's actually happening in that scene. Because there's right. a lot of loathing also that's going into that loathing of herself, but also loathing of um, of Max. There is. I also think there's something that Todd Field, as the writer, does here that is really significant that um, is also kind of sneaky and you don't really realize what's, what it is until you understand the full the full scope of the story and that is that one of the things that she's saying to max is you know you don't want to you don't want to be judged for who you are you want to be judged for your work i want to be judged for my work and um like what i do shouldn't matter just because i'm a woman you know if i was a woman or a man or non-binary or whatever the case may be my work should stand on its own merits that's that's her big one of her big arguments as far as kind of just decrying the whole identity politics idea. And so ultimately what happens in this film is that we see her in a situation that we have become very familiar with seeing men in situations like she's being accused of harassment, sexual harassment, grooming, um, which we'll get into that in a minute, but she's being accused of these things that are very common for us to see nowadays um, coming from men. And um, and it's interesting because especially like some of the conversations I have had with people about this movie is that it's not <laughs> it's not necessarily so cut and dry. Like if if this was about a male conductor and you hear these these pretty credible allegations it's just like yeah fuck that guy but because this is a woman it's like well but she's really good and she's worked so hard so it's like we are kind of judging her situation at least some people differently because she's a woman and in that scene Mm she is basically saying don't do that yeah i i think that that's a really good point um but at, at the same time, she's also saying that you should just let my work stand on its own, regardless of anything that I've done or haven't done. Right. 
And, and that's, that's, I think the, the, the flip side of that. And that is, that is something that has, that has been extended to male artists. Yes, very much. Across the centuries, as, mm-hmm. as we're talking about, and, and, in the, and in terms of this, we're talking about someone like Bach, but that's been extended to male artists constantly. Yeah. You know, constantly like, you know, I mean, even, even right now. So I think that, uh, you know, we talk about Woody Allen, we talk about Roman Polanski, we, hell, we've even had people trying to revamp Harvey Weinstein fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Just like, well, say what you want to about Harvey Weinstein. He's just like, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. Don't say what you want to about <laughs> Harvey Weinstein. We are not going to have a butt there. Exactly. Um, well, and and but I, I do I do think that that is part of the point that the film is making as well, is that when she is punished, she is punished in a way that men aren't. Right. And and you and the and the fact is, we don't know what happens to her after all of this. We don't know what happens to her at the end of the after the end of the film. Um, who knows like, like what what route that she, what route she is ultimately going to go. But the punishment that she is given for legitimate crimes right this is not is is, it isn't a defense of her at all the punishment that she is given is different from the punishment that is faced by particularly by straight white men and i i do think that it's interesting that there are a couple of points where they talk about um gay men within the the conducting within the classical music community right the symphony community mm-hmm. and how and i think that like even one of her mentors was basically saying like well you had to keep it under wraps you had to keep it concealed you know if i got into trouble well it was going to be horrible um and so i think that there's that that element that is feeding into it as well that there is even though you are occupying spaces that like, oh, I'm the first woman to do this. I'm the first gay man to do this. Even though you are occupying those spaces, you are still being held to a higher standard ultimately than the straight white men who are going to sweep in and take over your orchestra just as soon as you fall. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and we see, we see that play out throughout the film. So one of the other connecting pieces i guess to these three opening scenes besides lydia is her assistant francesca now francesca Mm -hmm. doesn't appear in the scene directly when she's meeting with elliot but they talk about her because um she's kind of a potential replacement for the assistant conductor and this is something that you know francesca is is her assistant but she's she's working on building her own career as well this is something that she aspires to but the other thing about Francesca in the very opening scene and then this Juilliard class scene is that Francesca's there to be nearby and to record everything. And that's one thing that we learn about Lydia is that someone's always watching and she's pretty much always being recorded. And um, that matters <laughs> because um, what then happens is after she leaves Juilliard, she goes back to Berlin Um and Francesca is letting her know that someone named Krista keeps messaging and that she's getting desperate. And um, Lydia gets home to her wife, Sharon, and they have an adopted daughter. And um, you just you know that this this Krista situation is a problem. Um, you also, as you mentioned, find out that the daughter is being bullied at school. And so there's just all these things that are happening in Lydia's life that are outside of her getting like the one place that she gets to just be free is when she is, is conducting music or talking about music, but there's so many other things that are happening in, in Mm -hmm. her life. And, and so we, we get to see some of those things unfold. She also seems to be plagued with some insomnia that, um, is manifesting in hearing things that may or may not be there. And it's um, she's really uh, clearly dealing with, with some issues. And then we get the news that Krista has committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And then we start to find out more about Krista and Lydia and how they knew each other and how close they were. So what are some of your overall impressions of kind of Lydia's personal life and then what we find out about this relationship with Krista. It's, it's again, it's so complicated and it it is one of those films that there's for as much talking as happens in it and particularly from Lydia, 
there's also a lot of silence. There's a lot of like people not saying things, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think one of the things that I think this film does really well, that's really well constructed and it builds on these things. So we get these little like, oh, Krista emailed again. It's like, oh, who's Krista? Like, what's going on there? And then you begin to get little pieces of information as you're, as also we're learning more about the characters. We're learning more about their relationships and the complexity of their relationships. Um, and about these these different power dynamics. So there's definitely like with um, Francesca, you know, she's holding out this opportunity of becoming this this director, right? Um, and advancing in her career. And at the same time, she's like, oh, we've got this this young, beautiful cellist over here that she also wants to hold out opportunities. So, so you begin to see more and more the way that, she, that, that Lydia Tarr in particular plays with power and the way that power dynamics work within not just the orchestra itself, but within um, her, the, the personal world, right? The, the personal and the professional world. Uh, and how all of these different things is that basic, at some level, you know, I think that Tar is basically trying to stage manage everything. She's trying to conduct her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't have the degree of power that she really thinks that she does, even though she's trying to manipulate it and play people all of these different ways. And then what she discovers is that those people are people. They are not, you know, notes on a page. They're not instruments being played and she doesn't have control over them. Um, and it all comes, you know, very quickly crashing down. Right. And one of the ways that it comes crashing down is there's this, uh, there's allegations because Krista had apparently been in a relationship of some sort with Lydia. We don't know how far it went. Um, I don't believe that we get that that detail, but um, yeah. it's clear that there was an imbalance of power because Krista was one of the members of this this fellowship group um, that when Lydia was in charge of it. And so there's there's a power dynamic um Lydia was the mentor and um and whatever happened ultimately Christus committed suicide and and of course you don't know for sure if it was because of of Lydia Tar or if it was because of other things but that definitely is an issue and as this um these allegations come out then she has to speak with a lawyer then it turns out there's potentially going to be a lawsuit um this is becoming a really big thing that's spinning out of control. And Lydia, like you say, trying to control the situation, um, trying to continue to control it, part of her just keeps, she compartmentalizes and she just kind of acts like that's something that's over there that I don't need to worry about. And she just continues with her life as normal. She doesn't really talk to her wife about this. She uh, is preparing for this big recording that they're they're doing and she's auditioning new violinists or is it a cellist maybe a, a cellist, cellist. cellist yes yeah. and there's this young woman olga who is from recently mm-hmm. moved from russia and um they you know they strike up a conversation and lydia becomes quite taken with her and things start to happen there and so it's like she is in the middle of this potential lawsuit and still continuing with her behavior that got her to where she's at in the first place yeah you you can see it sort of spiraling out of control already like uh, like as soon as olga gets introduced and then you're like oh this i know where this is going kind of thing or this this is a problem right um and and yeah, and I think I think that a lot of it does go back to these power dynamics and this desire that that Lydia obviously has to man to try to control everything, right? And and also in behaving in the way that and and again, I think that it's interesting because we get her biography, but we don't see it's this isn't you know it's a, not a biopic. We don't see her go from you know rags to riches or anything like that. We don't see the progression we can only kind of envision what the progression might be. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that we're introduced to a character, like I say, who has lost something or warped something in an effort to fit into a role that she, to, to be successful. 
And she's doing it then to other people as well. It, it is it is that kind of, you know, the cyclical nature of abuse, whatever, um, in in the sense that, well, not whatever, but it's in in the sense that, you know, was this kind of power dynamic definitely was the way that it probably operated when she was a young student. And then she is doing it to other people. It's all of this exchange of favors, right? There's there's indications about like, she's promised Francesca something, but at the same time, she's dependent on Francesca. She doesn't want to let Francesca go. And also Francesca knows too much. Mm-hmm. All, you know, all of those little elements that kind of build up and up. And I think you get the same thing with, um, with Krista. Some of the implication about Krista is that at some point, maybe Krista had Krista's feelings were too strong. She became too dangerous, or something like that. And so Lydia like sets out to destroy her career, um, and and to like stop her from getting accepted into orchestras. And this entire time, you you kind of see this buildup basically of her attempting to run things, and it not it ultimately not working. Right. Right. Coming now, back to bite her in the ass. You know. Yeah, exactly. And there are a lot of, of details that I think we can kind of, um, we don't need to, to rehash everything that happens. Um, no. But I think that, because <laughs> there's a lot, this is a two and a half hour movie. Um, and I, I think that also for those who haven't watched it yet, like some things need to be a surprise. Um, but we do see things kind of come to an interesting sort of head when she has to go back to New York for this deposition. And um, while she's there, she ends up back at presumably her mom's house or her, her family home, her childhood home, goes into her her room. She's seeing like all this stuff that, that belonged to her from her childhood, um, including watching tapes of Bernstein um, and then her brother comes home and we learn that she's not even named Lydia. What did you think of this kind of, um, I don't know if it's a full left turn, but just this kind of visit into, into Lydia's past and getting to see who she was and, and what ultimately made her want to go into this world in the first place. Well, and I, I think that's that's I think that's part of what I'm trying to get at when I keep on, you know, reiterating this whole idea about her losing something or her warping something. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that, that that scene in particular, and then the scene where she goes she goes to um is it Thailand yeah. that she finally goes to? Um and in those sequences, there's this whole thing about, you know, trying to get like you say, get back to what was important to begin with. Mm-hmm. and what was actually meaningful to begin with. And, you know, there's that wonderful scene where she's watching a Bernstein concert and she starts crying, um, you know, and it's it's a great, like, just like focus on, on Blanchett's face and, you know, she begins welling up, et cetera. And that's where you begin to get the emotionality. It's like this stops being about control and power and starts being about emotion and about music and about what music can do. And she has waxed eloquent about this before, but the most powerful, you know, moment is is her watching this old videotape. Um, and and I do think that those that those scenes speak to this this whole idea about her um, abandoning or destroying something in herself to become successful, and that the success at some level in itself is is ultimately something that warps her. The whole the political games that she that she maybe feels like she has to play or um, that she does begin to play. And then all of the different power dynamics that get going as a result of this, that she has sacrificed willingly, right? But still sacrificed something within her own soul. And that that's, that's something that she has to get back to, not even in order to redeem herself in the eyes of the audience, but to redeem herself in her own eyes, to have any sort of a, a a the possibility of retaining her soul almost mm-hmm. yeah and we see that where she started off in the beginning we see her she is conducting the berlin philharmonic and getting prepared to do this big recording that she's been working toward her whole life or at least for the last you know several years of her career this is something that really matters to her 
And by the end, after this journey that she's been through, which was largely of her own making, um, she has significantly fallen and she's taken a job conducting an orchestra uh, in an, in another country, um, a little bit different from the Berlin orchestra that we've seen. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know, hasn't seen it yet, I won't spoil exactly where she ends up <laughs> because I think that it's a little bit of a what is happening kind of moment that you just need to experience. But I think seeing that full circle and seeing where her, where she began and where she ends and how somehow, even though she's fallen very far, I think to your point, I don't know, for me, and you probably have a, a different interpretation and I've talked with other people who felt differently about it. But for me, that visit home, that reminder of why she started this in the first place, makes it make sense why she would take the job that she ultimately does, even though it's something that, you know, at the beginning of this journey would have very much been beneath her. Um, ultimately it's about the music and it's about transporting an audience and doing that in, you know, in collaboration with a, you know, a, a group of musicians, talented musicians mm-hmm. and, having that experience together. And so I think that there's a tragedy in where she ends up, but also a little bit to me of um, a little bit of catharsis. I don't know if I'm supposed to feel that, but I did a little (laughs) bit because it's like she got back to what ultimately really mattered the most, even though it was not where she should be. Um, You know, she kind of found, found, I hope found the love of the music again i yeah i i think that 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 final sequence is difficult to interpret yeah um and and i think that there are there are multiple interpretations for it honestly and i i kind of feel like that that's what the film is going for the film is not i don't think that the film is make is saying like here is the moral judgment that you must make this isn't and the moral of the story is kind of thing um it it is very much about this person and who she is so that, that's why I, I said earlier that i don't know that the ending itself is redemptive in the audience's eyes so in the viewer's eyes but i do think that it is somewhat redemptive in her own eyes yeah um so in the character's eyes she has lost everything pretty much like uh, right. most of the things including you know her wife her child her um her orchestra um, the things that she wanted that she was pursuing, she's lost them. Um, and what she still has is, you know, access to music and access to that, those emotions. And that is something that it is, there is a little bit like, like you can't take it away from her, but at the same time, she's taken it away from herself. And I don't think that the film makes any bones about the, that. It's not other people that have stolen this from her. She's brought this on herself. Right. Um, and so I do think that she is redeemed in her own view because she is able to go back to what is, like you say, truly important to her and what was always truly important to her, which was beyond her femininity, beyond her, anything that she thought she was or is, was the ability to conduct and, and, the mu- and to perform music. And that's like, you know, I think you mentioned earlier that the only time she seems really free is when she's conducting. It seems to be the only time that she sheds all of those other things and is just able to be in the moment. Um, and you definitely get that, I think, at the end of the film. Yeah. She's able to be in the moment, as fucked up as everything else is. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, I heard a, I won't say theory, I heard a, a reading of the film that I don't agree with, but I definitely found it interesting. <laughs> Um, I, I 100% do not agree. And this is not what I think the movie is, but this person was of the, or took the interpretation that everything that happens up until you catch up with her at her, at her childhood home, none of that actually was real. And that was all in her head. And that was like this life that she imagined living (laughs) and Um, that everything from her childhood on was real. (laughs) show me no because i've heard okay i i'm about i'm about to get mad i'm gonna get mad uh 
I was like, I don't agree with that, but that's no, if you want to fucking interpret films like that, Mm -hmm. fucking show me, show me where the support for that is. Yeah, I I don't know. I to me Show the me. only scene that I'm not totally convinced actually happened was the scene where she doesn't get to conduct and takes some action because I feel like that would have resulted in jail time. Um, I mean, not necessarily. They think about the world that we're in. She beat um, the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you still you st- in order in order for there to be jail time, he's got to decide to press charges. True um so so that's part of it yeah i'm that's the only part that i'm like maybe that was just in her mind but the rest of it no and i think it's intended to be very like yeah i i am not i would be willing to entertain this whole dream fantasy idea if you were able to actually show it to me if you were able to actually prove to me that the preceding film the film that ran before that right Mm -hmm. works through that interpretation Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um that's that's the only way that I'm that I'm willing to accept this. By the way, this is an interpretation that I've also heard of taxi driver. And <laughs> oh I just want to say again, you have you all interpretations despite what we may imagine are not created equal. Right. You have to be able to prove it. Oh yeah, you have no, to be able I agree. To show it to me within the film. So, I I don't even know like I'm having difficulty even entertaining that because I'm about to be really elitist here. Like, I think that that's stupid. Uh, <laughs> but, but in, in terms of like viewing, viewing it like that, what does that then mean about the rest of the film? What, what effect does that have on your understanding of what happens in the film? Yeah. Like, what yeah. does it mean if, if the film is all a fantasy or a dream, right. And then she woke up kind of thing. What does that mean? Now, again, this was not my interpretation, <laughs> but I suppose if if that were true, I think that uh, I think that what would probably be, I don't know if this would be the meaning, but I think that what that would would suggest, is that she had kind of created this fantasy in her mind that she also then needed to tear down to explain why she is in the place that she is. But that doesn't even work in terms of, so what would the ultimate solution be that she is, she's in the place that she is because this is what would have happened to her. Well, cause then- that's just like, she, you know, wasn't good enough to make it or it really is a boys club and she couldn't break her way in. I don't know. I don't know. I <laughs> again, I it's not my no. theory. No, I actually no. didn't even hear it directly from the person. I heard it secondhand. <laughs> Someone else was like trying to explain it to me, and I feel like our conversation was pretty similar to the one that you and I are having right now. <laughs> so C- I was just like, C- minus, come see me after class. <laughs> I was just like, it was kind of one of those things like, do I bring this up? I don't know. I kind of just want to just to tear it down. So <laughs> I, I'm sorry. And I've just been I've just been really offensive about it. But I, I am offended by this. No, well, yeah, no, I, I my thing is like when people are going to interpret movies that way or even just try to come up with this like, well, it could be this way. My thing is not just show me, but also if it's not actually i mean yeah i guess show me like if it's not actually in the text of the movie then it's not the inter it's not the intent of the filmmaker you know yeah well no that that's again it goes back to show me i I am i am more than happy to interpret you know to to listen to i may not agree with them but i'm more than happy to listen to interpretations of films Mm -hmm. but you have to be able to prove the interpretation and i i'm i do not think again having only seen this film once you know but i do not think you can prove that right in any sort of comprehensible way yeah no it because it doesn't it really doesn't um there would be no purpose to that i think there'd be no no reason for that i think there are some interesting things that seem disconnected that um that happen but i think you know like um like her missing notebook (laughs) where is that notebook what happened to it um and 
there's certain like the whole thing with the neighbor this like these dreams that she's having and the sounds Mm -hmm. that she's hearing and things like that there's obviously something more at play that we never really dive into much but i don't think that all this is in her head is the explanation for that no 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 it is not no (laughs) so overall I know you've still only seen it once. You have not gotten to see it again yet, but your feelings were very complicated about this. How are you yes. feeling about it? Have you kind of settled on something more sure? Or I I, th- I think that it's always a good indication. I said this on our, our regular episode as well. I think it's always a good indication. I think actually you said it um, on our regular episode. It's It's always good when you see a film and you want to watch it multiple times. Mm-hmm. And this is not a, it, this film didn't make me mad. Like there are some films that I'm just like, I dislike this and I know exactly why. There were some things that I'm like, I don't know if this works, but I really want to see it again. And I want to decide if it works. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that, you know, and I think even Todd Field said that this, this was a role that he wrote for Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. And if he, if she hadn't been able to do it, he wouldn't have made the film. 100 percent. she the the cast around her is fantastic she has to carry it because of the nature of the role and she does and it, it, it's really spectacular and i don't think the film would be half as interesting without her in it absolutely um and so so yeah i i really like it i think that it's very rich and obviously it, it produces a lot of conversation, a lot of complexity and and a little bit of discomfort. And actually, I think that that's a good thing. That means that like, I'm you know uncomfortable with some elements of this and I want to kind of interrogate that and deal with it. And that that to me is the hallmark of a truly great film. Yeah. And I mean, Todd Field has only directed three movies and mm-hmm. I think all of his movies leave you with that. They're not comfortable They don't leave you feeling like, oh, I feel so satisfied. I'm so glad I, you know, had this. I mean, I'm glad I have this experience, but, um, but yeah, his movies are not like happy movies that leave you feeling all uplifted. There's a lot more to them than that. So, yeah. So what, what about you, Karen? What are your, do you come down on one side or the other? Like, um, I feel like this is not a movie that you like or don't like unless you're a monster. I think this is a movie that um, I really appreciate the artistry of it. I really appreciate. uh, And by that, I mean everything about it. I think the cinematography in this is great. Um, The, the music Hildur um, Gudnadotter did the score Um. And she's incredible. This work is incredible. Kate is amazing. The entire cast is really great. Um, And I think that this is a film that I didn't know how I felt about it when I first saw it. And I still would like to see it again. But I think that having had time to sit with it, having had, I haven't had as many conversations probably about any movie this year as I have about Tar, where it's really it's not just like oh i love this part you know or or that part was great or you know those kinds of conversations where you're just like appreciating a a fun movie this isn't like that these have been like really deep you know intellectual conversations about well what do you think this means and why do you think that and i i just i really appreciate that so i feel like this is a film that i I'm not like, oh, I love this movie. It's so happy or or makes you feel feelings. You know, it's it's more of just like, I really appreciate the experience of this film. I really appreciate mm-hmm. everything that went into it. I'm so glad it exists. And I do want to see it again, more so to try to have a deeper understanding of it than to just like, oh, I can't wait to watch that scene again or see this moment or, or oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, Definitely. Pretty well, yeah, amazing work from the guy who invented Big League Chew. <laughs> Which is my favorite random fact about probably any film director. <laughs> I think I read about I read about that the other day. I was like, I, what? <laughs> okay. Yep. He was not a film director at the time, but <laughs> he is now. It's like a little, little side project. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow, really interesting. Yeah. So but for anybody on, who's... Oh, sorry. 
I, I just wanted to say one more thing simply because I keep on thinking about this and I honestly have no idea how to understand this scene at all. The scene where she's jogging and in the park. Oh yeah. And she hears someone screaming, right? Mm-hmm. And she kind of tries to look for, for who it is, like trying to figure out like, is this something that she's just hearing? Is this, what is this? And then nothing comes of that, right? Mm-hmm. That. I, I don't know how to understand that scene um, in, in light of everything else. And, and I'm still just like sitting here going like, what is that? What did it mean? Cause it's, it's a deliberate scene. Like it isn't a throwaway scene. Right. Um, and, it, and it is within the context of these other things that she hears or thinks that she hears uh, and what does she hear them? Does she not? And, and there's still, yeah, that's, that's one scene that I'm like, there's something in that and I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. I actually had forgotten about that scene. Um, that's another one where it's like, yeah, this is, this is why I need to see this again, because yeah. I think there are, there are a few moments like that where it's like, I really just need to, uh, like I could give a guess, but I, I probably would be off. So it's like, I, yeah, I need to see this again mm-hmm. to, um to dig into that a little bit more so i don't know it's just it's like that remind me thought. where yeah no i remember the scene but remind me like where that happened like what I, scene I, was that in between if you can i remember. honestly like i honestly do not remember and that again you know talking about why we need to watch this one the second yeah. time um i honestly do not remember i i do remember that there's there had been we'd seen a couple of times where like she has difficulty sleeping she hears things she hears like you know uh, a clock chiming she hears things outside um things like that and it's not the first we see her jogging a couple of times mm-hmm. it's not the first time we see her doing that but she go it's when she's going into the park and then she hears this this screaming and she looks for it and can't find anyone, can't find anything, and then winds up leaving and goes, I think that that's when she goes to a newsstand and picks up a um, uh, um, a magazine that like has her on the cover. And, and the next scene is like her clipping out um, articles about herself, basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's, that's, I don't remember exactly where that falls in terms of the, the whole arc of the film. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Someone tell me. Someone give me an interpretation of this one because that, that's one that I can't I can't get. Yeah. Message us and let us know what you think it is. We're both going to at some point in the near future rewatch this movie and hopefully we'll come up with something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts before we close out? Uh, just that I, this is, this is one that's really, really worth seeing. It's worth, it is on, um, you know, in, in home theater rental. Uh, it actually is worth the 20 bucks. I spent the 20 bucks on it. I do not regret it. Um, and, and yeah, and amazingly enough, I sat through two hours and 40 minutes of this and I'm just like, am I going to sit through two hours and 40 minutes of this? I did. I really <laughs> liked it. I was quite riveted by it. So yes, definitely see it. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think it's a fantastic film. Kate Blanchett is worth the price of the ticket alone. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up then. Um, we don't need to get into all of the closing out stuff, but where can people find you Lauren, if they would like to uh, tell you their interpretations? <laughs> right now at least i am on twitter instagram and letterbox at lh business and i'm also sort of on mastodon at lh business at mastodon.social um so yeah excellent about and you, karen i am on all the things sort of uh at karen and peterson i'm still most active on twitter and instagram but you know we'll see what happens and then the show is also <laughs> uh same places uh at citizen name pod Except for on Letterboxd or at Citizen Dame, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go. All right. Well, we will be back with our next regular episode uh, in just a couple of days. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Let us know your thoughts on TAR. And if you have not seen it, please let us know that we have inspired you to watch it and then go watch it. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Cool. All right. Well, you all have a great day and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Time.
is the thing. Uh -huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time really? it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together.